I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, everybody. It is Daniel here. Just uh, We're about to jump into the first of three episodes on the life and times and literary enterprises of Samuel Johnson. Um, and this, in this first part of the, our three part series, we look at his journalism, basically his, uh, kind of his op-eds that he wrote for the periodicals, the idler and the rambler. Uh, we kind of end up asking ourselves, is it possible to be both timely and universal? We of course fail to answer that question as we fail to answer most questions, but we have a damn good time having a conversation about it while we do and kind of exploring how these issues Johnson was, uh, grappling with in his day continue to resonate to our own. The reading's a little dry, uh, admittedly, but uh, honestly, we got a lot out of it, and we had a lot of fun talking about it. A little bit of housekeeping before we jump into that, though. Uh, if you're online, please check us out. at uh, We have our uh, podcast website and blog at thecannonballpodcast.wordpress.com. We are on Facebook. So just search for The Cannonball Podcast. Find us on Twitter at Cannonball Pod. Uh, just you know, check us out on all those locales. We uh, put out some material uh, through all that, especially on the blog. Uh, Claude's very active. I uh, need to pull my weight. <laughs> I'll start contributing more on that. Um, but there's always good good stuff coming out, announcements, and uh, you know, cool place to hang with other people who listen to the pod. Uh, the Cannonball is a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network. Uh, and actually further about this Agora podcast network, it happens to be a great place to advertise if you want to reach a discerning audience that is always willing to explore the various parts of the world around them. So do you have a product to sell or a service to provide and want to spread the word that you're open for business? Well, go Agora. Let our network of independent podcasts connect you with over a million curious and discerning listeners each month. Sound interesting? You can email us at agorapodcastnetwork at gmail.com. That's Agora, A-G-O-R-A, podcast network, all one word, no punctuation, at gmail.com and discover the difference Agora can make. And one last note, uh, if you're in the New York area and you need any reading or writing tutoring or are interested in online tutoring, let us know. Claude has a tutoring business on the side. And if you're a listener of The Cannonball, you know that this guy knows what he's talking about, about writing, about uh, literature. This guy, you know, he does it professionally. He's amazing. Um, so Claude has his tutoring business. He also has a newborn. So he's always looking for a few more clients to uh, help out with the uh, expanding Claude family. So if you need some help, uh, just send an email to ClaudeMoInc at gmail.com. That's uh, C-L-A-U-D-E-M-O-I-N-C, all one word, no punctuation, at gmail.com. Uh, we've also had listeners say that they have uh, actually asked some of their students in classes to listen to episodes of The Cannonball in preparation for talking about uh, you know particular literary figures. 
And so we thought, hey, well, we can produce some literary lectures on demand if that's what you need. So uh, if that sounds like something you would like, then uh, yeah, hit up Claude, claudemoinc at gmail.com for all your tutoring and uh, bespoke literary lectures. And with that, let's jump in and talk about Samuel Johnson. Hello, and welcome to The Cannonball, a podcast attempt to read all the books in Harold Bloom's list of the Western canon. This is Claude Myron Guzer, and with me as always is my partner, Daniel Doherty. Daniel, I checked out this really fascinating book from the library uh, this past week. It is um, The Crucified Mind by Robert Havard. Uh, it's, it's this really interesting look at Spanish surrealism in light of the effects of Spanish Catholicism, particularly taking into account the Jesuit education that most of the Spanish surrealists had. Huh, yeah. And it comes to these really sort of fascinating, um, conclusions about the way Spanish surrealism is kind of a different beast from French surrealism. And it, it really, it, it addresses a lot of sort of that generation of 26, you know, Lorca shows up, uh, Dali, Manuel, mm-hmm. uh, Machado, I believe has, has, you know, his places here and there. And, uh, but it's mostly through the lens of an analysis of the poems of Rafael Alberti, this, this other Spanish surrealist who went through several phases of surrealism, uh, who, who's also associated with that generation who ended up having to leave uh, Franco Spain and go to Argentina, I believe. Yeah. It's it's an extraordinarily fascinating book, but I can't talk to you about it tonight because tonight we got to do Samuel Johnson. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh man. I suppose that that contrast uh, should give you an idea about what it was like to read this section of Johnson. Yeah, guys. Uh, I guess um, we'll, we could just say that uh, you, you know sometimes the canon. Sometimes reading the canon, it feels like eating your vegetables. And, and folks, this today, you know, it was a little bit like eating your vegetables. But it's not going to be eating your vegetables for you guys because what we're here to do is use our – uh, you know, we're taking the bullet for you. We, we take we take the parts of the canon that aren't quite so fun to read and turn them magically into rock-solid radio that you can enjoy at drive time, at the gym, doing the dishes – just, you know, wherever you enjoy podcasts. So, you know what, man? I think in that spirit, let's make some people care about Johnson, dude. Uh, yeah, I, I, I know. I, I, I'm, I'm sort of slagging on him a little bit, uh, more than I probably should. No, it, it was, it was, he's, okay, it's tough to get your head around because I, I think the genre of writing is something that, that resists easy interest to a degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, these all right we broke johnson down if you haven't been following the blog or or listening before we we broke johnson down into three sort of separate areas that we're going to take on and today we're taking on sort of his mid-period journalism uh next time we're going to take on his i guess creative endeavors rasselas and the vanity of human wishes Mm -hmm. And then in the third section, we're sort of going to take on his, his later literary criticism and his editorial work and sort of think through how that fits in. But it's, 
Okay, I I think the best take on Johnson that I had, I I have a friend, uh, she's a colleague of mine, she's an extraordinary scholar, and her fields are sort of the long 18th century and romanticism. And in particular, Mm -hmm. she's uh, really fascinated with the way one bleeds into another. I mean, yes, you can look at romanticism as this sort of strict break, but historically, she looks at how they, you know, feed into each other. Yeah, yeah. And I I asked her, you know, where do you fit Johnson? And she said, well, he's not – like she said that one of her mentors in grad school said it best that he's not exactly someone – you read, but he's kind of a figure of that time. Yeah. Yeah. And and part of that, you know, part of that has to do with how he was this kind of, you know, organizer, ranger, raconteur, this guy who got things moving. Mm -hmm. And the other part is, um, he was biographized, if that's a word. Yeah. Yeah. Contemporary at his time, uh, Boswell wrote down all of this stuff about Samuel Johnson and so wrote his biography, you know, as he was living it. So he, he is a producer of works, but also kind of became a literary character of his time at the time. So he's got this weird kind of life to him. It's like, what exactly are you reading when you're reading Samuel Johnson? And when you get at the actual works that he produced, they, they're very much of their time. So it yeah. makes it a little bit more impenetrable, uh, or at least for me, it was. And it's interesting that you, that you mentioned that because the um, because that's kind of the opposite of how we have sort of responded to, or rather, the opposite of what we have arrived at the uh, the, the the point of canonicity. You know, like mm. these all these other uh, you know a lot of these other works have been. Um, have been ones like, uh, well, like say the Divine Comedy, you know, or or the Canterbury Tales, which are, you know, of course, of their time, but they are not representative of their time. They are standout of their time. It's it's not like it's a sample of what the general tenor was. But with Johnson, and I and I think honestly, like the one of the reasons why, I think it's because of Boswell's, you know, biography and the the you know the fact that we have so much biographical information about Johnson is part of why he has retained this kind of star power. If that makes, yeah. makes some sense. But yeah, the, so these essays are kind of like, imagine Montaigne with a mean streak and a deadline. And, <laughs> and that gets you close to, to kind of yeah. what's going on as a kind of just the format we're talking about. Yeah. It's, it's sort of like, okay, these are editorials more or less. I mean, it, it's sort of like if you took a collection of, slate hot takes over the course of 10 years and looked at them a hundred years later, some of it would resonate, but a lot of the particular concerns of the moment would not really matter. So yeah, it it would be, it would be both difficult to parse and also just feel irrelevant. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's not that all of Johnson feels irrelevant. In fact, uh, you know, we're going to get into this, that, that sort of tension between how much, um, sort of how much of the contemporary moment to take on and how much you're trying to reach beyond that moment to say something general or universal. I mean, that's a tension within, you know, almost all of the writing during the 18th century. Mm -hmm. And we can talk about that in a little bit, but yeah, it's, it's just, 
this is the first time that we're doing this that I kind of want to apologize to anybody <laughs> reading along with us because this this really was a slug. There were certain moments in Montaigne that could kind of feel like a slug, at least to me. But mm-hmm. there was something about his wit and kind of generosity of character or just ability to keep speculating or coming back to – experience to ground him it it felt very very personal and Mm -hmm. could at least be amusing and a lot of the times johnson with these kind of editorials that he's writing which is essentially what these are before there were editorials it, it can feel very um prescriptive and proscriptive and sort of beating you over the head with it. I'd like, yeah. I, I think you pretty much nailed it. Montaigne <laughs> with a mean streak and a deadline. <laughs> right. Um, but, but I guess to sort of place him in sort of what's going on around his world. Um, I guess you mind if I take a minute and kind of talk about what, you know, what, what London is in the 18th century, you know, like yeah. what, 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 what Johnson is writing in. I, th- I, I hit think, it because yeah, 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 this is a far cry from when, when Milton was doing his thing. That's and, yeah. That's kind of what I wanted to, to talk about there is that, you know, the, the last time we checked in on jolly old England, it was the English civil war. <laughs> but um, so now we're up into, into the, you know, the 18th century, the 1700s. Um, this is the time this is a time it's a schizophrenic time i think in the development of sort of english national character and not not least of which because that is no longer simply just england or i guess you want to be very proper england and wales but as of 1704 i think uh but anyway in the first decade of the 1700s it's the united kingdom Yes, everyone. The UK is born uh, with the union of uh, England and Scotland, not just as having share, just sharing a monarch. The same person inherits either throne it is now a united throne uh, with uh, with, you know, the, the, the Scottish Parliament is subsumed into the English Parliament. So it becomes the British Parliament. We, now we can start talking about Britain and a British Empire. Um, right. And that's, and I think it's a kind of a fascinating tension at work here because this is also the time throughout the course of the 18th century is the, just the sweeping ascendancy of Britain and the British imperial project across the globe. This is, you know, the Spanish empire is, has, has been very clearly in terminal decline for a long time. In fact, England will be fighting the war of Spanish succession. They're, they're fighting a war over who gets to sit on the Spanish throne. If that's not an indication of, the decline of Spain and his imperial power. I don't know what is when you have foreign armies going to war over who gets to be your king. Um, but so it's, you know, you have the, uh, well, of course, we here in the United States are pretty familiar with the whole the 13 colonies on the eastern seaboard of North America. Um, but it's also, this is the the time of the the British East, uh, East India Company is swallowing up vast amounts of territory on the Indian subcontinent, you know, thousands and thousands of miles away. Uh, this is the time of uh, the first settlements in Australia and the beginning of the program of ethnic cleansing that, uh, that went on there, uh, more set- settler colonialism in, uh, in every uh, corner of the globe here. Um, so this is a time of real, uh, this kind of expansiveness. There's, 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 there's this feeling of this upsurge, this ascendancy, but it's also a very fragile time. In England's own backyard, this is, you know, we had the, this is the age of the Jacobite uprisings. You know, we have the, right. uh, we had the, uh, the, the quote unquote glorious revolution in 1688, the, the famously bloodless, uh, revolution, which 
uh, sort of established the kind of partnership of equals between parliament and the monarchy, which the British were so very, very proud of thereafter, which Edmund Burke, of course, would you know go on and on about, uh, about what a, what a wonderful and, and uh, organic thing had happened, not, of course, mentioning <laughs> several traumatic breaks <laughs> that were required to generate this particular system, and the fact that this was not a bloodless revolution anywhere, uh, if you, you know, if you were in, say, Scotland or Ireland. Um, Hence, there's the, 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 I guess the term we should say Jacobite revolts are those, uh, partisans of the deposed Stuart monarchy. Uh, the, 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 uh, committedly Catholic Stuart monarchs would, uh, from time to time rise up. Most famously in the time of, uh, in, in sort of Johnson's time, this, you know, mid, uh, uh, 18th century with the, uh, the Highland uprising in the 1740s, we had the famous Battle of Culloden, which was kind of the last hurrah of Scottish Highland culture. Thereafter, right. there was a very pointed, it, it, there was a very pointed program of, again, ethnic cleansing in Britain's own backyard. Uh, oh yeah, the, uh, the clearances. Exactly, the Highland clearances, where this, the entire material basis for the Highland way of life was eliminated by simply just moving people out by bayonet. Like They just, yeah. they literally cleared the Highlands. Um, so you have this kind of dichotomy between what seems like a very strong and assured state striding forth across the globe, you know, toppling the received order, you know, of, of an ancient civilization, a continent away, but that is also struggling to maintain uh, control over its own territory on the very Island that it's based on. It's a very yeah. schizophrenic time, I think in, in, in British and specifically English uh, culture. Yeah. And, you know, this is, we were sort of talking about this before we got on the air, but this is the time that's often referred to as the Enlightenment, or I guess in, in, you know, here the English Enlightenment or sometimes Scottish Enlightenment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's taking place, but so is a lot of other stuff. And if, David Hume is indicative of this moment, and he certainly is, then so is Johnson. And the two yeah. were pretty much antithetical in most everything that they thought. Right, right. There's so that kind it, of that kind of um with the Scottish Enlightenment specific yeah, particularly. And that's a that's a fascinating uh sort of topic just to to to, to say just very quickly that the um we can talk about a British imperial project because the the lowland Scots you know, Edinburgh and Glasgow, uh, basically mm. the, the two kind of uh, uh, metropolitan centers of lowland Scotland, were very avid and active. Uh, a lot of the actual manpower of empire was drawn from those met- metropolitan areas. The, the, the intellectual right. and military core of the British Enlightenment was Scottish, which is – Again, a topic for a whole other thing to talk about. Like yeah. this, this ostensibly subordinated national unit is in fact leading the imperial charge. But um, something that was pretty interesting is this is also a time of expanding literacy. This is a time of concentration of populations within urban centers because this is also incipient uh, industrialization is beginning to pick up, and this is also the dawn of the age of journalism. And right. I've never, I'd never thought about the word before, but it, uh, I, I learned recently that it comes from the French journal, simply meaning, you know, of the day, like de jour, you know. Uh, so it was, you know, th- th- it was, this was the dawn of daily news and these first newspapers, which, 
was the scene that Johnson would be very, very involved in. Um, I, uh, I, I, I read as sort of part of preparing for the, uh, the podcast today, I read a, a really very enjoyable, um, kind of popular history of where newspapers came from in the English speaking world called The Invention of News by Andrew Pettigree, P-E-T-T-E-G-R-E-E out of uh, Yale mm-hmm. Press. And was really fascinating. I recommend it to everybody. I really liked it. But one thing I had no idea about, and which kind of makes a little more sense right now, is that the first newspapers were all aggregators. They were all Huffington Posts. <laughs> there was no, yeah. there was no original reporting. It was basically the purpose of the newspaper was to gather up as much news about uh, basically the outside world. It wasn't domestic. It wasn't the local beat. It was world news. It was to gather up as much information about what's going on out in the world. And just print that on a, you know, a dang broadsheet. And that's how the movers and shakers in London kept abreast of what's going on. And I, I thought that was fascinating that dovetails so closely with the world spanning imperial project that you have yeah. all of these English speaking people ev- scattered across the world, sending information back to London where the ink stained wretches all collate it and crank out, <laughs> you know, the, the, the rag in the morning. And, uh, and it creates this culture of journalism uh which yeah. which johnson was to play a great role in participating in and shaping really yeah it, it's you're getting at a really sort of fundamental point about this time period is that johnson was living in a time i mean he lived a good long time he lived from 1709 to 1784 so he kind of saw it all but um he lived during a time where literary culture really was changing. And you kind of have to take it back to, I guess, Charles II. Uh, when Charles II returned from France, he sort of brought with him a kind of continental French culture. Uh, it, it really sort of changed the, the culture of English writing, particularly the theater. During the Civil War, there was uh, just – the theater was shut down. The Puritans didn't believe of it. End of story. Uh, there's just a, a hiatus and a break and the restoration reintroduced theater, but it's almost sort of like coming in as a grafted tradition in this weird way. Yeah. Um, so it, it, the, the theater becomes very, very continental and the theater becomes this, this point of, I guess, analysis for a lot of, the journalism and you get critics sort of emerging from that. And it's yeah. also a very aristocratic art form as it's reinterpreted. And the writing more or less goes aristocratic or, or goes to the, the purpose of justifying the aristocratic rule <laughs> and, and mimicking it even in its form. I mean, this is the era of the, the great heroic couplet, mm-hmm. uh, the poem used for purposes of wit. And that, that sort of plays out, but it's, it's also a time you see it in Johnson's time. There's a kind of descent, right? So as, you know, the, after the, the glorious revolution, after William and Mary and then Queen Anne, they have to go sort of trolling for a monarch and they find the German Georges. George the first was, uh, an English monarch who to his dying day spoke no English. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and you've got the emergence of sort of bourgeois politics and the, I think as you put it, the, the transformation of politics from sort of high aristocracy to this kind of, um, parliamentary game more or less. Yeah, it was really, this was the time that, uh, this was the time that the office of prime minister was invented 
by uh, yeah, Horace basically. Walpole, basically a, a very powerful minister kind of <laughs> through the course of his career invented the office well, of prime minister for himself as a, as yeah. this kind of, uh, you know, and, 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 and parliament had basically given itself the right to select the monarch. Uh, and, yeah, that, and that's I how mean, you got George in there, but yeah, it's, it's, yeah. Yeah. Wobble, Wobble managed to secure his position, uh, through, Basically, scheming, conniving, and being able to speak German. <laughs> exactly, I mean, that was it. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, the, you know, there's this. <clears throat> there was a book I read. I cannot remember who wrote it, uh, but it was back in undergrad, and it was on the literary culture of the 18th century and sort of the politics thereof and the role of satire. This this is also sort of the great age of satire, and the the case that the the author made was that in order for a political revolution to be successful, the reigning government needs to be uh, extraordinarily corrupt, obviously so, and extraordinarily weak, obviously so. Yeah. The problem with uh, Britain at this time is that it is wildly extraordinarily corrupt. However, it's not weak enough to fall. So the satire is kind of – it's not exactly pointless in a way, but it's sort of like – John Stewart in the age of George W. Bush. I mean, it, it's sort of a <laughs> yeah. fit of rage that can't do anything. Right. I mean, it really can't. It's it's at best right. a uh, you know it's it's a psychic bomb for the powerless. Right. So anyway, that that's kind of <laughs> that's sort of the age that Johnson is writing in. Um, the best writers of the age were ones who were uh, pretty much not associated with the official organs at all, uh, because for whatever reason they didn't um, they didn't have access to the to that machinery, and that machinery was so corrupt it wouldn't have invited them in anyway because they had integrity. So uh, it, it's things like that. But um, okay, so Johnson is living in this age where the the as you pointed out the literacy rates are rising, and you've got this sort of emergent middle class. I mean, the middle class has always sort of been there, been around, asserting itself here and there. Here's another moment where it's sort of asserting itself and it's asserting itself through literacy. But um, they've got the ability to read and some of the aristocratic pretension, but they don't quite have the chops. This is also mm-hmm. the age of the gloss or the annotation. This is the age of the translation. Alexander Pope sort of established that you could be a writer as a profession due to his translation of his translations of the Iliad and the Odyssey. They were bestsellers and he could just support himself through writing. Yeah. Um, you know, so you wouldn't have had to do that if this vast readership could actually read the Latin and Greek. Um, <laughs> right. <that's, laughs> and, you know, the, the, this is the innovation of the, the footnote and, and the annotated text. And I've got some, I mean, who knows if we'll ever get to Swift or Pope, but, um, Swift and Pope both had a really good time with this. It's the age of criticism, the age of annotation. Um, if any of our listeners really want to have some fun with this age, uh, it's not all Johnson. There's, there's actually a ton of really good yeah, writers yeah. from the 18th century. I feel bad that we're doing, uh, Johnson, but, um, Jonathan Swift did this book called A Tale of a Tub. 
And uh, Swift was well known as, you know, a, a somewhat scandalous satirist. And uh, everybody sort of wanted to know what this book meant. It's, it's something of a difficult work, but uh, the idea is that it's written by a guy who technically knows how to write, but doesn't really bother to go back and revise. And so he just spews <laughs> out whatever is in his head. Yeah. And I mean, it literally has one whole paragraph where – the 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 topic sentence is proposition A. He gives you about a page worth of gibberish, uh, and at the end he gives you. And so, as I've just shown, proposition not A. Right. So it literally <laughs> contradicts itself. Well, uh, I, I mean, it was purposefully written poorly, but uh, when it was published, nobody knew exactly what it meant, and so all these sort of cliff notes and readers guides were published. So, what did Swift do in the second edition? He incorporated those readers guides as footnotes, <laughs> and so he annotated his own text with misreadings of his own text. So, it, I mean, it, it's, right. it's really kind of hysterical to read it. You're like, what is this thing? And, and Alexander Pope sort of went one further. Pope printed the, he, he wrote this poem called The Dunciad, which he published first in an edition with three books, then added a fourth book and did some minor, some, some other editorial stuff. And then he published his own Variorum edition, or it's a, a mock Variorum edition. Um, it's a mock epic as a mock Variorum edition. And, um, he invents two scholars to write a fake introduction, <laughs> a second fake introduction, yeah. a dedication to this and that. And they annotate the whole thing and completely misread the poem until you get to the point that these two fake scholars are basically just warring with each other and are just spending hundreds of pages of annotations sniping at each other over nothing. It's, it's, it's really kind of silly and, and wonderful and brilliant astounding stuff. But this is sort of that age where, you know, there's a need for a gloss among the readership. Yeah. And yet this feeling among the writers and the readerships, a, a real self-consciousness about that. Well, I shouldn't need this gloss. And yet I don't have any Latin or Greek. Right. Right. All right. So I guess that gets us to, to, um, that's sort of the literary culture of the time. Um, that gets us to sort of a brief biography of Johnson, born in 1709, dies in 18, uh, sorry, 1784. Um, his, these are sort of like the greatest hits of his biography. You know, his father was a, uh, ran a bookshop, so he read a lot as a kid. And afterwards, um, <clears throat> he attended one year of college about more or less, but he left because they didn't really have much money. Um, he tried to work as a teacher that didn't work. He apparently had something that was close to, or was Tourette syndrome. Hmm. Yeah. But, um, it, it, it's, that's what I believe people have sort of posthumously diagnosed him with because he apparently had, um, a tendency to exhibit sort of facial tics. Um, so it, from the description, I think he's been posthumously diagnosed as Tourette's, but I'm not, I'm not certain about what that means. Uh, but apparently, uh, his, his sort of facial tics and, and what was called at the time his odd demeanor prevented him from being a very successful teacher. Uh, they would mock him, make fun of him, do what have you. Uh, he, at, 25 or 26, I believe he married a woman who was 45 years old. Uh, she was a widow. Um, her family didn't like it too much. He was stable for a little bit, but, uh, 
I, I'm not quite sure if they had a falling out or exactly what have you, but he left to go to London to pursue a literary career. And he did some journalism. He did some of what we would now call literary criticism. He wrote a few poems. He wrote a play called Irene. Um, <clears throat> he sort of established himself as this figure, as this literary figure. He wrote a dictionary. Uh, it was sort of, it wasn't the first dictionary in English, but it was sort of the, the biggest, baddest at the time. Yeah. Yeah. It was a major undertaking. And later in his life, he edited uh, Shakespeare's plays. He wrote his Idler and Rambler uh, essays. He wrote a kind of novel called Rasselas. And he did this whole series of Lives of the English Poets. Uh, it, it was sort of like an editorial thing at the same time as he's writing these sort of prefaces on the lives of major English poets and also a lot of minor English poets. I mean, more or less just to, to publish it, to get it out. He was writing about sort of minor 18th century writers of the time, hmm. but offering his insights into what made them tick or how they operated or, or just what exactly was going on there. Yeah. So um, are there, are there, I guess just quick aside, are there any like writers that we know primarily through Johnson mentioning them? Like, did he save anybody from pure oblivion? No. Okay. <laughs> no. Fair enough. <laughs> Not to my knowledge. I mean, it's okay. If you're looking at the Oxford edition, he writes about Addison, uh, Cooley, Milton, Dryden, Pope, Thompson, Watts, Collins, Young, Gray. Uh, fairly well known. Uh, a lot of them are kind of, okay, this is the Oxford edition and they're, um, those are some of the, the not exactly heavy hitters of the canon, but some pretty major ones. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Well, Milton, I, I guess, is a heavy hitter. But uh, there were a lot of other ones that were just sort of like, okay, here here you go. He's a guy. Here you go. He's a guy. Uh, think about the period pieces of our own day. You know, who's who's really going to be remembered? There'll be a footnote somewhere, but I, I don't think Johnson <laughs> really saved anyone or resuscitated anyone's um, <clears throat> reputation. It was more, I, I guess we'll get into it, but my, my understanding just from the limited uh, reading I've done of, it, done of it is it's sort of the beginnings of what we would call practical literary criticism. Yeah. Sort of like, okay, it's part appreciation, but sort of, well, okay, I, I suppose it's not practical literary criticism. It's part appreciation and part attunement to some aspects of the craft to try to articulate what differentiates this in some way, shape, or form. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I got you. Yeah. Okay. I think I follow. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so <clears throat> we'll get to that, I suppose. <laughs> but in the meantime, right now what we've got are his Idler and Rambler um, editorials, more or less. Uh, yeah. He he wrote these uh, – they were sort of printed independently twice a week for a couple of years. Editorials that – you print up and you sell them and you sell them out. You 
get, I guess, a couple of subscriptions and things like that. Mm-hmm. And you just keep sort of pushing them out. And he's obviously writing them for money. I think that's the thing to keep in mind with Johnson is that now we have somebody who's writing for money. Right. And and that's why – that's kind of what I was thinking when I said he's like, uh, you know, Montaigne with a mean streak and a deadline. Like he was churning these things out. He had two – yeah, like yeah, he had two editorials a week that he was turning out. And I, I was reading a little bit uh, about his process where he would sometimes like much like myself, just wait until like the very last moment. It would be like writing to hand off to the boy to run to the printers for the first part of the editorial while he finished writing the second part, just so he could make deadline. Yeah. I mean, it was like really, he would just wait till the last minute, crank it out. And then, you know, Bob's your uncle, but uh, yeah, but he's, he's, but it, you know, honestly, like it, it reads fluently enough that uh, you, you'd never know, really. Well, yeah, it, it's. I don't know. I found myself falling into this thing. I, all right, if you, I, I don't want to say this is a hundred percent of the time, but a lot of the time, the very opening is going to be fascinating, and yeah. the very ending, the summation, is also going to be fascinating. And what happens in between is just a bunch of dry stuff. Um, it, it's sort of like the beginning, the opening and the ending are, are the places where he makes these kinds of broad pronouncements, these sort of general statements about what we're about to read and then the lesson that we draw from what we have read. And it's in those that you get sort of the pithy statements, the, the sort of coffee mug quotation Johnson or the book of quotation Johnson's. And it's often in the middle where he's making his points where you just, or at least I just lose interest. Um, but that's, I don't That's the thing I keep thinking about Johnson is a lot of times, at least for me, he's better out of context than in context. Yeah. Uh, sort of the, the ripped off aphoristic Johnson, uh, as opposed to the actual essays. But there were some things in here that I, I really found fascinating or really found actually touching in a way. There were a couple yeah. of, of essays that I really, did something not all of them but a couple of them i I thought were okay this is fascinating there's something going on here this is this is sort of how it operates and the the other thing that sort of kept me going through this is um well okay i know why bloom put johnson in uh bloom put johnson in and has a whole chapter on him because johnson for him exemplifies somebody who can or at least to bloom admire work though he really dislikes its ideological position and the whole thing that bloom was trying to do in the western canon was say we need to appreciate these things regardless of the ideological position yeah um okay i i guess uh i i still have problems with that um when i was a kid i used to love ghostbusters and as a much older person uh i think ghostbusters is profoundly wrongheaded <laughs> to the degree that it prevents me from really enjoying it. Yeah, I, you um, know, I, I'm kind of, uh, I'm kind of in much the same way. I, I, I realized like, uh, pretty early on in my life that, uh, you know, Ferris Bueller is just a real dick. And I, yeah. <laughs> and so I've got, I've got yeah. the same way. Like you read, yeah, yeah. You watch some of these old movies and like, wow, no, that guy, no, fuck him. <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so the, I, I I don't quite agree with Blue. I can I can admire 
certain kinds of, uh, I guess, aesthetic achievement, if you want to call it that. I hate the word achievement, but I can, I can admire some yeah, kinds yeah. of aesthetic productions without necessarily completely being on board. But then there are just some things that I'm like, no, no. Uh, but anyway, um, so to, to break it down, there, I, I broke down Johnson's editorials into, uh, a couple of different kinds. All right. So the ones that I don't want to touch at all because they're so, um, pretty much deplorable are the ones on women in marriage. Anytime he brings up women, you're just going to shut down or, or at least I'm just going to shut down uh, rampantly misogynistic. Um, the women in marriage ones are sort of, he, he keeps writing about marriage and he writes about it in this way that it's just awful. Uh, and, and it's mostly, you know, sometimes it's, Sometimes it's the man's fault because he's deluded into believing that he's found the perfect woman and then she reveals herself to be flawed in some way, shape or form and so on and so forth. And so even when it is the, the man's, um, I suppose self delusion, uh, it's really the woman's fault for everything falling to pieces and the man being miserable. Yeah. Okay. That's nice. Uh, I don't really have much to say about that because there's not much to say. I don't know why all of those were included in here, uh, except maybe to illustrate what a misogynistic jerk he was. All right. <laughs> right. So then too, you've got the character studies, things like rural tyrant, prostitute story, the rooming house chronicle, an astute young lady and vanity in a stagecoach. Uh, he'll, he'll sort of invent these characters or situations or scenarios uh, kind of like mini sketches and they they're kind of fascinating for what they are um there are many illustrations of an idea or a character or a type and some of those i i thought were really kind of fascinating vanity in the stagecoach uh is one i want to come back to and talk about at length because of all of them i found that one the most um most interesting uh the political or social issues those are another set you've got essays on capital punishment mm -hmm. um the female army which is more or less about getting rid of the army uh for, <laughs> yeah. um you know it, it's it's interesting because he was considered a tory or he was a tory uh for his time he was considered a staunch conservative uh, but that doesn't necessarily line up to our own politics today. He was against the whole colonial endeavor. Mm -hmm. He writes against that. And he was also against militarization. He writes against that and against war in general. Yeah. So the female army. Yeah. And it's, and it's also interesting to reflect on the fact that the, those pursuits were the kinds of, it, it's, all the, 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 those those pursuits, the colonialist pursuits, the militarization, the rationalization of the military, like turning it into a bureaucracy, those were yeah. all considered cutting edge projects to be involved in. That was the Enlightenment. That was yeah. part and parcel of the Enlightenment. And it's kind of it's kind of frustrating, like these days when you have people like. Um, Oh, what's his name? Steven Pinker or like all these other people who drape themselves in the legacy of the enlightenment. And the minute you like, you know, you're, you're talking with somebody who's all like, Oh, well, I just uphold the values of the enlightenment and everything. And you actually point out what a lot of these enlightenment guys were up to and what they supported and whatnot. And they're like, Hey, actually this was bad. 
Like a lot of this stuff yeah. was actually bad. It wasn't just about the light of reason. It was, oh, the light of reason tells me that it's okay to bayonet all these people and then plant my farm on their land. Like it's really, right. you know, yeah. So, so to be, to be cutting edge and, you know, and, and moving forward and, and forward looking at this time was really to be in a lot of ways to be part and parcel of a very destructive project. And so the, we kind of associate that idea of military dominance just strictly with right wing conservatism these days with, I mean, yeah. with good reason, because the, those who would refer to themselves as right wing conservatives generally do align themselves with militarism. Um, but yeah, that wasn't the case back then. In, in fact, like the terms like Tory and Whig at the beginning of the 18th century had more to do with whether you thought like with, with how strongly you felt the uh, principle of inheritance for the throne mattered over whether or not it was a Catholic or a Protestant. The Whigs were like, right. well, look, Parliament can pick the closest relative who's a Protestant. And the Tories were more like, nah, we should just stick with whoever got born at first, you know, what have you. <laughs> and so it was really, yeah. So you're, you're dealing with a political territory, which is very, which is very different. And I think very revealing to then reflect on, you know, what these terms can mean and how they change. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Yeah. So he also wrote about the debtor's prison. He wrote The Vulture's View of Man, which is another anti-war tract. And he wrote European Oppression in America, which is an early sort of anti-colonialist mm-hmm. um, endeavor. You've got uh, his sort of burgeoning literary criticism on the new realistic novel, pastoral poetry, um, biography, co- cognate, uh, sorry, cognate diction, how to become a critic, uh, literary imitation, journalists, rules of writing, projectors, successful and unsuccessful in autobiography. And then you've got sort of like these, these general meditations or observations, sorrow, stoicism, need for general knowledge and benefits of human society, uh, parental tyranny. And, that's I don't know that that's sort of how I was breaking down and trying to to get my head around uh, all of these all of these pieces. Um, we spoke about this before, but I want to come back to it. The what's difficult or or why it's difficult to connect to this stuff is because on the one hand it's very very general and very very specific. It's trying to negotiate between speaking to the time and also speaking beyond the time. Mm-hmm. And that's this kind of anxiety in the, in, in a lot of 18th century writing, which wants to model itself on 
the the writing at the height of the Roman Empire, a lot of which was literary occasional or liter literally occasional, i.e., written for an occasion, or uh, satire. Uh, we think of Virgil, Ovid, uh, the Odes of Horace, but so much more of what was back there was just satire of uh, mores and morals. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's sort of like, how do you write something that's specifically addressing something happening now and yet will not be dated or won't be extraordinarily dated in, you know, 20, 30, 40 years, right? Right, right. So that's where he keeps trying to (laughs) – that's sort of what I'm saying is that the opening of his essays and the closing of his essays are these sort of general statements, which I suppose you can, you know, think through now. And the specificity that occurs in the middle (laughs) is what it's kind of hard to get your head on. Right, that renders it more of the slog. Like when you have the uh, – yeah. Well, I think that's kind of interesting because the I found myself coming back to the I found myself coming back to the I I would think unfair to Johnson comparison with uh today's op-ed columnists. And and it's kind of if you want to I, I, I think that's kind of the inheritor of what Johnson is doing, really. It's what's the, t- it's the, it's the hot take economy. You know, like Johnson's sitting yeah. there. He has to turn out two of these a week. He's got to talk about something. Uh, buh, buh, oh, well, this annoyed me today. So I'm going to make a grand point about, um, you know, uh, human, uh, artifice because I sat in a stagecoach and looked at a guy weird for a few minutes, you know, <laughs> and, but it's the same, it's the same kind of like, it's the same kind of setup as like, you know, the latest like bullcrap Tom Friedman talking to a, another dang taxi cab driver in Dubai or whatever. Right. And he makes some point about how, no, actually, and that's why the capital gains tax should be slashed to zero or whatever the hell he wants to talk yeah, about. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. And okay. So you brought up, the the first essay that I really sort of want to dive into, yeah, because I I really did actually enjoy this one. Yeah, um, the stagecoach one actually stage is really good. <laughs> uh, Vanity and stagecoach. There, there are a couple of reasons why why it hit home to me. Um, be, one is all right. So in the middle of doing my dissertation, um, yeah, I just finished. It wasn't the middle of the dissertation. I just finished. All of my uh, field tests, I, I had to sit in a room for three hours uh, per field and write basically a five to ten page essay just on that field, arguing something about that field. Yeah. And I had to do that three times. Uh, so I read everything and then sat in a room and typed all this out and had something of a mental breakdown. And... <laughs> Pulled myself together, started working on um, getting some kind of proposal together for uh, a dissertation. And my wife came home and said, hey, what do you think about moving to New York? <laughs> uh, <laughs> so um, we did, but I had to uh, – in order to keep the fellowship, I had to keep going back up to Boston every week. So for about three years, I would ride the Bolt bus from New York to Boston 
uh, leave every Monday morning, get off the bus, go straight to school, like hit the T, go straight to school, uh, right from the bus, uh, sit down, teach, go back to my office, write until it was time to go crash with, um, some friends, get up the next morning, come in, sit in my office all day, write gym for an hour, then back to my office and write, uh, go home at like six or seven o'clock, uh, come back the next day, write, teach, hit the bust. Uh, I'd be back it, um, in New York at about, you know, 12 o'clock at night. And I just did that for like three years. Um, so riding on a stagecoach for four days, <laughs> some of his observations, they still hit close to home for, for someone who had to commute long distance a lot. Uh, he says, in a stagecoach, the passenger, passengers are, for the most part, wholly unknown to one another and without expectation of ever meeting again when their journey is at an end. One should therefore imagine that it was of little importance to any of them what conjectures the rest should form concerning him. Yet, so it is that as all think themselves secure from detection, all assume the character of which they are most desirous, and on no occasion in the general ambience of superiority are more apparently indulged. Uh, sorry, and is the general ambition of superiority more apparently indulged? Yeah. Um, no one knows anyone on a stagecoach, so you got to puff yourself up to to you know make yourself look like somebody because you don't know anybody and you don't want to know anybody. <laughs> Uh, there's nothing that speaks more to riding the bolt bus for three hours than that. Uh, <laughs> except what I was trying to do was maintain anonymity, but he's, he's got these great observations, uh, about these situations that if you have something comparable, they kind of reach home. So the whole point of vanity in the stagecoach is how for four days, this group of people are trying to convince each other that they're all, you know, at least upper middle class or nearly aristocratic mm -hmm. or have some access to power or have this, that, and the other until by the time, you know, it's finished, you realize that everyone's just putting it on. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the person you thought was, you know, a great lawyer is actually just some kind of minor clerk to a minor lawyer who picked up this legal gibberish that makes you think maybe he knows something. You know, the guy who, who claims to be, you know, an expert on the stocks is just the dude who delivers sandwiches or something like that. Like the, um, that's sort of like the deflation of everything. And that's why it's vanity. But, Okay, and he also has this line about how sick of every each other everyone is by the fourth day. Uh, it might be expected that upon these glimpses of latent dignity, we should all have begun to look around us with veneration and behave like the princes of romance when the enchantment that disguises them is dissolved and they discover the dignity of each other. Yet it happened that none of these hints made much impression to, uh, on the company. Everyone was apparently suspected of endeavoring to impose false appearances upon the rest. All continued their haughtiness in hopes to reinforce their claims, and all grew every hour more sullen because they found their representations of themselves without effect. So <laughs> yes. they're all sick of each other. And the more they try to impress each other, the more it, it fails. But the the ending, the conclusion is is really sort of what what 
drives it home. But Mr. Adventurer, let not those who laugh at me and my companions think this folly confined to a stagecoach. Every man in the journey of life takes the same advantage of the ignorance of his fellow travelers, disguises himself in counterfeit merit, and hears those praises with complacency, which his conscience reproaches him for accepting. Every man deceives himself while he thinks he is deceiving others, and forgets that the time is at hand when every illusion shall cease, when fictitious excellence shall be torn away, and all must be shown to all in their real state. Uh, that struck me <laughs> as almost coming straight out of the second book of Don Quixote. Uh, yeah. And so if, if, if you've been waiting for it, this is where I want to say that this is the sort of epistemological endeavor of, of Johnson. Uh, <laughs> there there we are. That, yeah. <laughs> but he believes, you know, sort of in this moment yeah. that this is all vanity. This is all um, a put on. We, we, we think that we're illustrating the best of ourselves and this sort of social game is nothing but that. Right. right? Right. So at, at the end of the day, uh, when we're dead, it's not going to matter. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, that I think illustrates how these sort of character sketches or how these, um, brief little sketches work at their best. Yeah. You know, yeah. Absolutely. He's, He's got all these specific observations, these quirky observations of everybody sort of putting each other on and then, you know, deflates the whole thing, uh, just poking holes in it until, you know, it's all just done. And then you get this grand summation of what it all means. Yeah, it's it's really, you know, he... It's really, I think it's a topic that lends itself to his format very well. Yeah. And, and I think, I think it really, I think one of the reasons why that particular essay is as, is as effective as it is, is it really does like set up, you know, a, elaboration and punchline. It's a really, I don't know all that, that kind of, that kind of, um, you know, it, universal yet harmless yet is it so harmless vanity that he's talking about i, I think it's, it's the perfect target for skewering in this in the specific format of the johnsonian essay so that's really so yeah. if you're gonna read any of these guys you know read that one in its entirety like start to finish it's an actual it actually has an effect it's, it's quite good and really the one that um and i'm glad you mentioned in the chat earlier because i had actually i'd made notes about it and then like left them at, at you know at work or something i was reading on a break or something like that but you mentioned another one that uh, you wanted to talk about was the one he wrote about debtor's prison oh yeah and that's one that really affected me a lot um just simply because like it, it's you know we uh we don't specifically have debtor's prison in the way it existed in johnson's day anymore but Contemporary American society definitely has a very sick relationship with both indebtedness and incarceration. And yeah. this – it's a piece that touches on both and touches on the sicknesses at work in both um, and not just in the way they – I guess they overlap in the form of the debtor's prison, which he's talking about. Yeah. I, he, he says – well, this is what I was <clears> – <throat> what I found kind of fascinating in that the end of all civil regulations is to secure private happiness from private malignity, to keep individuals from the power of one another. But this end is apparently neglected when a man, irritated with loss, is allowed to be the judge of his own cause and to assign the punishment of his own pain. Mm -hmm. When the distinction between guilt and unhappiness, between causality and design, is entrusted to eyes blind with interest, to understandings depraved by resentment. Uh, you know. 
essentially, well, debtors' prisons. Uh, if someone can't repay their debt, the it, it would be the on, I guess, on behalf of the debtor, they would charge the person, and mm-hmm. that person would be thrown into prison. Right. So I don't know. Yeah, it's it's punitive and vengeful because how are they going to repay? Exactly. And, and uh, what I think it's you know, and Johnson <clears throat> mentions like right up there that basically you're you're taking out your own bad bet. On someone yeah. else, you you loaned your money, and it turned out it was a bad bet. The like the whole idea behind debt, and, and honestly, look, re- what really exploded my my thinking about this is a wonderful book by, and I think I've I probably mentioned it before on the show just because I, I like his work a lot. But there's a uh, an anthropologist by the name of David Graeber who teaches at London School of Economics, and he wrote a book called Debt: The First Five Thousand Years, which is a marvelous, marvelous book to really expand your idea of what debt and money is and what it's for and how it became. Um, mm-hmm. But one of the things that he points out is that the, the, the idea behind indebtedness is that there is a mutual agreement made on the part of the creditor and the debtor, wherein the interest, you know, there, there's an interest payment, which is to be, you know, handed over to the creditor, which is there to cover the risk of the debtor not being able to pay, it's it's already built in. This 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 idea yeah. that he's covering his ass is already built in. So the, the the idea that there was for centuries this you know, and honestly, like, well, it carries on to this day because you know, I mean, wh- what is what is a bad credit score than you know punishment for someone else's bad bet in in, in a way? Yeah. Um, but this 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 physical punishment, this actual incarceration of your body, where you can't. It was, it's just pure uh, malignance you know, on the part of the yeah. creditor. Well, that's what he writes. I mean, it, I think he makes a very good point. Those who made the laws have apparently supposed that every deficiency of payment is the crime of the debtor. Mm-hmm. But the truth is that the creditor always shares the act and often yep. more than shares the guilt of improper trust. Uh, yeah. Uh, happens that – You know, uh, sub, yeah. subprime mortgage loans, anybody? 2008 ring yeah. a bell? <laughs> exactly. It, oh, but we've learned so much since then. Oh, we haven't. It we seldom happens. <laughs> seldom happens that any man imprisons another, but for debts which he suffered to be contracted, in hope of advantage to himself, and for bargains in which he uh, proportioned his profit to his own opinion of the hazard. And there is no reason why one should punish the other for a contract in which both concurred. Mm-hmm. So it's exactly what you said. Yeah. The point that Johnson is making is that, look, if you made a bad bet, well, that's on you. Uh, so it's, it's a very, it's a very humane way of thinking through the process. But then he came back to the subject. And this, this is what I thought was fascinating. He comes back to the subject of debtors' prisons. He has a second essay about it. Mm-hmm. And um, on the one hand, I, I'm not trying to diminish his sort of heartfelt appeal, uh, appeal here because he does, I think, very rightly point out just the perversion of it. You know, yeah. uh, you're, you're punishing someone else for your own bad judgment, but it's interesting that he sort of gets into the data. If you want to call it that in the yeah. second essay, um, okay. I'm just going to read this quote and then, um, I, I, I want to read, uh, something else 
All right, listen to this. If we estimate at a shilling a day what is lost by the inaction and consumed in the support of each man thus chained down to involuntary idleness, the public loss will rise in one year to 300,000 pounds and 10 years to more than a sixth part of our circulating coin. Mm-hmm. I am afraid that those who are best acquainted with the state of our prisons will confess that my conjecture is too near the truth when I suppose that the corrosion of resentment, the heaviness of sorrow, the corruption of confined air, the want of exercise and sometimes of food, the contagion of diseases from which there is no retreat and the severity of tyrants against whom there can be no resistance and all the complicated horrors of prison put an end every year to the life of one in four of those that are shut up from the common comforts of human life. Thus perish yearly 5,000 men overborne with sorrow, consumed by famine, or putrefied by filth, many of them in the most vigorous and useful part of life, for the thoughtless and imprudent are commonly young and the active and busy are seldom old. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, So he breaks it down according to the data points to make this argument that uh, you're sort of wasting productivity if you keep these people in prison. Now, I want to read something else to you, and I want to see if you can identify it. Mm -hmm. Uh, The number of souls in this kingdom being usually reckoned one million and a half, of these I calculate there may be about 200,000 couple whose wives are breeders, from which I subtract 30,000 couple who are able to maintain their own children, although I apprehend there cannot be so many under the present distresses of the kingdom. But this being granted, there will remain 170,000 breeders. I again subtract 50,000 for those women who miscarry or whose children die by accident or disease within the year. There only remain 120,000 children of poor parents and only born. The question, therefore, is how this number shall be reared and provided for, which, as I have already said, under the present situation of affairs, is utterly impossible by all the methods hitherto proposed. For we can neither employ them in handicraft or agriculture. They neither build houses, I mean in the country, nor cultivate land. They can very seldom pick up a livelihood by stealing till they arrive at six years old, except where they are of towardly parts, although I confess they learn the rudiments much earlier, during which time they can, however, be properly looked upon only as probationers. All I have been informed by a principal uh, gentleman in the county of Cavan who protested to me that he never knew above one or two instances under the age of six, even in a part of the kingdom so renowned for the quickest proficiency in that art. <laughs> uh, I, I, it took me a second, but I picked that up. I believe that is a modest proposal from Jonathan Swift. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The point that I'm trying to make is, um, is that there's something I, I found kind of unnerving <laughs> right. on right. data because what, I mean, it's, he's trying to do that thing that you still find contemporary economists trying to do to sort of make some kind of humanitarian point in, the least human way possible. <laughs> well, I, I think that's, I think Johnson is kind of engaging it. And, and you see it from time to time in some, in some polemic that there's the, you know, it, it's, 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 it's taking, it's, it's, it's taking what is an absolute cut and dried moral argument and, and couching it in all these. And besides, you should be against this anyway, you hard nosed realist. I'm doing scare quotes because it actually right. is wasteful. And it's the kind of thing where, where it's like, Oh, I really wish you wouldn't even try to appeal to the twisted morality at work that, that consigned people to this kind of suffering to begin yeah. with. But yeah, you're right. Like it's, it, it is a, a bit, but no, that, and that's the essay that actually, um, it's that second essay on Dare's prison I was thinking of simply because the way the Johnson's end of it was just really, really affected me. I really loved it. And I'd, I'd like to read it here. Um, yeah. So t- talking about the, uh, it's sort of talking about creditors who, you know, to say like, okay, well, you know, well, you're going to go to debtor's prison because you haven't been able to uh, repay my, my debt. He writes here to, to end this essay. Surely he whose debtor has perished in prison, although he may acquit himself of deliberate murder, 
must at least have his mind clouded with discontent when he considers how much another has suffered from him. When he thinks on the wife bewailing her husband or the children begging the bread which their father would have earned, if there are any made so obdurate by avarice or cruelty as to resolve these consequences without dread or pity, I must leave them to be awakened by some other power, for I only write to human beings. <laughs> yeah. And goddamn, I about stood up and shouted. I about stood up and shouted. Just I was overcome with the spirit when I read that. That yeah. was just a, absolutely. It was just phenomenal. Yeah. So, I mean, he's he's – Grumpy and uh, and and angry, but every once in a while it sort of pays off. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there were a couple in here. The you know, debtor's prison, um, definitely role of the scholar in need for general knowledge and how to become a critic. That I thought spoke really well, kind of to our our current moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, debtor's prison. I think we we already sort of walked there. Um, role of the scholar and then the need for general education. All right, I bristled at this a little bit because it's the same old, um, it's it's the same old complaint I always hear. Well, why can't these you know so-called scholars and academics uh, just write something so that I can understand it? Um, what he's arguing is that it, it, it's the thing you hear all the time, these useless degrees or this, these useless fields of knowledge. But what he's arguing essentially though is that <clears throat> you need to be able to understand how your field fits. Like what does it do? What are you doing? How is it sort of incorporated into society at large? No. Yeah. So it, it, it's sort of like, how does it, well, what, what is the purpose and what is the use? Yeah. And within that, you know, I, I, I tire of, of these kinds of arguments. He, he sort of sums it up at the end by this descent from the pinnacles of art. No honor will be lost <clears throat> for the condescension of learning are always overpaid by gratitude. An elevated genius employed in little things appears to use a simile of Longinus like the sun in his evening declination. He remits his splendor but retains his magnitude and pleases more though he dazzles less. Um, you know, be able to transmit it in a, a, an easily comprehensible way if you've got something to transmit. Yeah. And I'm, I'm annoyed at this <laughs> somewhat because sometimes, well, complicated thoughts are complicated. Damn it. There's no real <laughs> way to, to, to argue them without, or, or to illustrate without them respecting or, you know, that, that, that complicatedness. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, okay. Like there, there are fields of philosophy that, have their jargon and terminology, but it's because once you've reached a certain point, you don't want to have to go back and explain all this stuff again to your peers who automatically know what you're saying if you just say, and so phenomenologically, it's not possible. Like one word that is impenetrable to a lay audience can transmit so much to a peer. What what seems like, what what seems like uh, to a kind of an unfamiliar reader as needless aggrandizement is, is actually a a, a function of simplification and, 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 
uh, it's actually an economy of language rather than fanciness for its own sake. <laughs> right. But they, they, there are moments where, um, he does sort of point out that, look, this stuff is difficult and you really sort of have to break your brain at it or respect people who have, uh, to expect that the intricacies of science will be pierced by a careless glance or the eminences of fame ascended without labor is to expect a peculiar privilege, a power denied to the rest of mankind, but to suppose that the maze is inscrutable to diligence or the heights inaccessible to perseverance is to submit tamely to the tyranny of fancy and enchain the mind in voluntary shackles. Okay, so I can't understand it, which means no one can understand it. Right. That's just not true. You know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and so that's that was what I found in in – that's kind of a sentiment shared in, in both of those essays to a degree. And that's something that I found, you know, kind of heartening. He does play up to that. Well, you know, these complicated, uh, scholars and all their gibberish, but he also, uh, recognizes that, well, no, it's not all gibberish. It's sometimes needs to be clarified and made concise, but there's a work there and a labor there. And just because something is, is complicated doesn't mean it's necessarily, um, incomprehensible. Right. It might be incomprehensible to you. Right. Right. I mean, yeah, like it's, it's, you know, have enough humility to know that, uh, you know, not everything is written for you just yet. Like I can, you know, if I, if I open up like a knitting book, I'm going to be completely lost because I don't know anything about knitting. I don't know anything about the skill. I don't know anything about the terminology, but that doesn't, yeah. But that's not to say that like people who wrote this book don't know anything about knitting or they don't know what they're doing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, um, you know, the, the other one that I thought was that really, really sort of hit close to now are the, the two essays on, on how to become a critic. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. One of the things that, that Johnson was sort of dealing with or, or that writers at the time were dealing with was the, the access to the press. More people had access to the press. Yeah. And sort of Johnson fits in at a weird place or I, I think he perhaps sees himself fitting it at a weird place. He is not okay. He didn't take the degree. He couldn't take the degree Mm -hmm. because he didn't have the money to take the degree. So on the one hand, in, in many instances, he sort of does represent this grubby lower class trying to have some kind of, uh, pretense to education and intelligence. On the other hand, he did know his Latin and Greek. He Mm -hmm. did know, uh, all the stuff he needed to know to, to a certain extent and, and he could do this stuff and he had this kind of intelligence to him. Um, so what is it that differentiates him from any other seeming pretender to, uh, intellectual insight, you know? Right. So I think there might sort of be an anxiety there, uh, or maybe that's my own anxiety, uh, <laughs> <a failed laughs> academic who has a podcast. 
Not failed. I do what? Come on. Uh, uh, anyway. Well, <laughs> having, having a PhD from a third rate institution is about like not having your uh, degree from Oxford. Oh, I so, suppose. Okay. Okay. Anyway. Uh, but anyway, to get back to it. Uh, so he occupies this place where he's neither one nor the other. He's neither an insider nor an outsider. Yeah. But what he has an eye to is other people who sort of occupy that place. And, and I think he does have a kind of humility in trying to suss this stuff out or at least a greater wit. Um, how to become a critic, I, I think speaks to that ease of critique. I mean, okay. Uh, look at how many critics there are now. Look at how many, uh, bad movie podcasts there are. Yeah. yeah. I listened to five of them. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, it, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, it's because <clears throat> just about anybody has that vocabulary for film. Anybody can hop on Twitter and see the hot takes of the day. And anybody can intervene in that argument uh, just as a sort of self-assertion. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I, you know, I, I honestly, like, I, I realized, like, uh, well, I, I myself have been deputized into the project when uh, a, a mutual friend of ours uh, tagged me for a uh there's this thing going around on facebook of a uh seven books in seven days thing mm-hmm. where you just sort of you know just post like about a, a book or whatever and i i i've really enjoyed it i i've i've uh I've done a couple of them so far and i realized like it's it's pretty enjoyable to talk about why you enjoyed a thing um yeah and and it's also like i really like you know in writing it's like okay i i am equipped to actually express to someone what it is about this that i am enjoying or how it affected me and, and why it affected me. Um, and honestly, I, I will tell you actually doing this podcast has made me a lot better at communicating that stuff. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, but it's like, I mean, that's the thing. And you can point to our own endeavor. I mean, I, I'm being self-conscious about this. I said bad movie, but you could also point to like how many literary podcasts are there? How many history yeah, yeah. podcasts are there? How many true crime podcasts? Because um, in some ways this format is open to anyone with the technology. And that's sort of what Johnson is dealing with. And I'm not trying to rag on anybody who does a bad movie, but I guess <laughs> uh, I'm just saying it's sort of like a democratized moment where, where most people possess an ability to engage that vocabulary and then to, um, you know, enter into a conversation of hot takes. And it's sort of like, it's the, the, the surface level of that, that I think Johnson is sort of objecting to. Yeah. Um, it's easy to have a hot take. Right. What it's not so easy to do is really think through whether or not you even need to have a hot take. Um, that, that's, that's what he's pointing out in, in how to become a critic. And, and this in some ways is another kind of character sketch. Yeah. Because he he sort of invents this this dude who uh, inherits money, and then after he's inherited money, doesn't have anything to do, so he decides to become a critic. And he says, this profession has one recommendation peculiar to itself, that it gives vent to malignity without real mischief. No genius was ever blasted by the breath of critics. The poison which, if confined, would have burst the heart, fumes away in empty hisses, and malice is set at ease with very little danger to merit. The critic is the only man whose triumph is without another's pain, and whose greatness does not rise upon another's ruin. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So what is the ultimate effect of criticism? Nothing. <laughs> I, I, I mean, it really, right. it's sort of like, okay, it's, it's, it's just a bunch of nothing and it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, okay. So he, he starts describing this, this character who starts cultivating himself and starts developing views. And he says, but he did not trust so much to natural sagacity as wholly to neglect the help of books. When the theaters were shut, he retired to Richmond with a few select writers whose opinions he impressed upon his memory by unwearied diligence. And when he returned with, uh, other wits to the town, was able to tell in very proper phrases that the chief business of art is to copy nature, that a perfect writer is not to be expected because genius decays as judgment increases, that the great art is the art of blotting, and that according to the rule of Horace, every piece should be kept nine years. Uh, basically, he shuts himself up with a whole bunch of you know the most popular writers of the day, and they give him all of their advice, and the advice amounts to cliché. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are sort of like great cliches of criticism of the 18th century. Uh, they're standard bits of wisdom that you can use to sort of trot out and, and, or that you can trot out from time to time to make yourself sound intelligent and the end. Okay. Uh, there's nothing here. And I think that's the point that he's making mm-hmm. is that this particular critic, uh, he's just sort of parroting the common saws and that's all most of us ever really do. Yeah. Um, these assertions passed commonly uncontradicted, and if now and then an opponent started up, he was quickly repressed by the suffrages of the company, and Menem went away from every dispute with elation of heart and increase of confidence. <laughs> so no one ever really challenged him, and if they did, um, his buddies just shouted them down. Yeah, it's it's a Twitter feud. Exactly, that's precisely what I was thinking. It's like those those times when you you know you look at the old feed, and it's like just 10, 15 different versions of the same joke about whatever's happening that day. And it's, you know, it's a little dispiriting (laughs) to see. (laughs) Yeah. And so, I mean, that's, that's what I think is really kind of, kind of the point of, of that whole essay is, you know, where, where does it come from? What is it doing? What are we doing when we critique? What am I doing when I'm slagging Johnson? Well, I'm expressing my frustration to a degree because I really (laughs) want to get to Goethe, but, um, all right. But but you you get the idea, you know, what is it that we're doing? Um, it's very, very easy to criticize and it, it really sort of doesn't do much at the end of the day. You know? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's a power move ultimately. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's a move that puts you or, or, or takes the thing that you're looking at and puts it beneath you and allows you to cast judgment and allows you to feel more powerful than, than the thing. Um, that's about it. Now I want to pull back for a second and say, uh, our, our producer Josh has a really fantastic film podcast. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, it's not, he and a mutual friend of ours, Skinner, uh, they watch movies and try to predict what's going to happen next because a lot of the movies they watch are so <laughs> extraordinarily bizarre. And if you want to hear two people like really, uh, Try to fix, like, try to walk through with a sense of wonder and guess at where something is going to go. Um, that would be it. And, and the reason I'm bringing this up is not just to butter up Josh, who's an excellent <laughs> producer and, and a friend, but it's to point out that what he does and, and what Skinner does 
it's something different. Mm-hmm. There, there's a kind of sense of playful awe at where strangely produced art can go. Right. And, and it's, and it still requires the same, uh, I would say the same kind of insight, the same kind of thinking that just a sort of sheer, you know, pitchfork rating of 7.2 would, you know, would, would require or whatever. Uh, but yeah, but it's absolutely wielded in a, in a much more interesting and, and fun way. Oh, and the show is called PredictoCast, by the way. I don't know, I don't yeah, know if we yeah, mentioned, yeah. but, uh, yeah, please check it well, out. But the, the reason I'm bringing it up is not just to butter up our, our producer, but also to point to one, a different kind of criticism, which I think is sort of in line with Johnson and, and two, to move us into one of the essays that I actually found really sort of fascinating, mm-hmm. and this is projectors successful and unsuccessful. Mm-hmm. Um, Josh has a, a, a love and affection and a real wonder for, um, let's call them aesthetic failures. And I don't yeah. mean failure in a pejorative. I mean, somebody was trying for something. This is somebody's expression. And he can talk about this at length, uh, very eloquently, but somebody was trying for something. Somebody was doing something. Somebody had a vision and put it into action. And for whatever reason, it didn't quite pay off Yeah, or, or it paid off in a way that's utterly astoundingly bizarre and strange and not like something you've ever really seen before. Um, that's, there's something of Johnson that respects that. And, and that's what you find in projectors. Now projectors, he, he opens by talking about projectors that he doesn't like. And what he means by projectors here is, you know, people who, who have a project right, right. or have this thing that they're, they're trying to do. Um, he, he says in an age more remote, Xerxes projected the conquest of Greece and brought down the power of Asia against it. But after the world had been filled with expectation and terror, his army was beaten, his fleet was destroyed and Xerxes has never been mentioned without contempt. A few years <laughs> afterwards, Greece likewise had her turn of giving birth to a projector who invaded Asia with a small army, went forward in search of adventures and by his escape from one danger gained only more rashness to rush into another. He stormed city after city, overran kingdom after kingdom fought battles only for barren victory and invaded nations only that he might make his way through them to new invasions. But having been fortunate in the execution of his projects, he died with the name of Alexander the Great. Um, (laughs) These two characters on par and says, I mean, this, this is almost a Montaigne move. What makes Alexander the Great different from Xerxes? just the end result i suppose i i guess i guess the um, fact that he uh you know he got beaten by uh disease instead of another army i guess i don't know yeah so he he goes on he says i'm far from intending to vindicate the sanguinary projects of heroes and conquerors and would wish rather to diminish the reputation of their successes than the infamy of their miscarriages for i cannot conceive why he that has burnt cities and wasted nations and filled the world with horror and desolation should be more kindly regarded by mankind than he that died in the rudiments of wickedness why he that accomplished mischief should be glorious and he that only endeavored it should be criminal i would wish caesar and catiline's 
Xerxes and Alexander, Charles and Peter huddled together in obscurity or detestation. <laughs> um, you know, that's one of his great lines. Yeah. But, you know, he's pointing to the fact that what, what did any of this accomplish? It's just bloodshed and bloodshed and bloodshed and bloodshed and bloodshed. Why is one the great and the other, you know, yeah. the enemy of all humankind? Um, but he turns then to, to say that there's something else that he does admire. He says, but there's another species of projectors to whom I would willing, willingly conciliate mankind whose ends are generally laudable and whose labors are innocent, who are searching out new powers of nature or contriving new works of art, but who are yet persecuted with incessant obloquy and whom the universal contempt with which they're treated often debars from that success, which their industry would obtain if it were permitted to act without opposition. Um, there are, are, a set of people who are critiqued into submission, as it were, who are only trying to expand our minds. Um, yeah. I, I think he's looking here to, you know, he's definitely looking to the arts, but he's also looking to the sciences and, and scholarship and things of that nature where something is attempted. And if it's not achieved, well, what, what is the harm? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's it's the the aim to sort of make us see better or think more clearly or do this or do that to to expand the human that you know they're trying to do and if it fails well there's no real harm and yet how much scorn and opprobrium right and, and are heaped upon anyway yeah and and you think and that's actually that's i mean i guess that's a particular fascination of my own honestly that's i we we can we can categorize a lot of kind of the failed projects in in that respect as uh well you know the, uh, a, a pejorative term kooks you know yeah. where you have like uh you know i i think one of my favorites is a, is a fellow by the name of uh lawson i forget his i forget his first name who uh in the early to mid 20th century established his own school of philosophy called lawsonomy which was to be entirely encompassing all of human uh, cognition within his schema, which would replace all <laughs> existing physics, chemistry, philosophy, all of that. He had it figured out. He started a school. It had, I think, about 200 students went through its doors, all told. Um, the man's pretty fascinating. Completely out to lunch. Absolutely. <laughs> but at the end of the day, you have to admire, like, here's a man who stood back and said, nah, this Einstein stuff, that's cockamamie. There's no way it could work like that. I'm going to figure this out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, you can dislike late Coltrane, fine, I'm not going to blame you, but he's doing something. Yeah, yeah. And, and you can't say he's not trying to extend his language in some ways, you know? So, yeah, it's exactly that. I, like, kooks, weirdos, or the avant-garde, It's it may not necessarily be to your taste, but I think Johnson is opening the door for embracing the attempt. Yeah. You know, yeah. or ad admiring the attempt. Admiring, right. Uh, admiring the attempt and, you know, the, yeah, just kind of admiring the, the chutzpah, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and there's something else that, that he adds. This is 
this is what I thought was a really fascinating part of this. They who find themselves inclined to censure new undertakings only because they are new should consider that the folly of projection is very seldom the folly of a fool. Mm-hmm. It is commonly the ebulliation of capacious mind, crowded with variety of knowledge and heated with intenseness of thought. It proceeds often from the consciousness of uncommon powers from the confidence of those who, having already done much – are easily persuaded that they can do more. When Raleigh had completed the orary, he attempted the perpetual motion. When Boyle had exhausted the secrets of vulgar chemistry, he turned his thoughts to the work of transmutation. Uh, it doesn't come from people who haven't done anything. It comes from people who've already gotten to a certain point and are then trying to move beyond that point. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, to go back to my, my, um, Coltrane example, you know, you get to a certain point in your art and you sort of mastered it to a degree and then you push further and further to see, all right, what's the next step? How much further can I go? That's sort of what he's, he's pointing to here. And he has a real admiration for that. Those who have attempted much have seldom failed to perform more than those who never deviate from the common roads of action. Many valuable preparations of chemistry are supposed to have risen from unsuccessful inquiries after the grand elixir. Mm-hmm. It is therefore just to encourage those who endeavor to enlarge the power of art since they often succeed beyond expectation and when they fail may sometimes benefit the world even by their miscarriages yeah so you know stand up for experimentation i i I thought that was really sort of the 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 beautiful point there yeah yeah that that kind of uh you know stand up for experimentation stand up for um utterly impractical inquiry Um, (laughs) i mean that's just you know the yeah um but I, I I want to to sort of conclude. You know, we're we're doing I, I think we're doing the the essays that that we found fascination with, and mm-hmm. I think we're sort of enjoying doing that. Uh, I do have to to sort of reiterate I this this really kind of was a, a slog for me because much of these get either repetitive or dragged right, down. Right, right. Which which, in, you know, stands to reason for the fact that this was guy guy turning out two a week for I think it was like a solid two years for the rambler and then i'm not sure about the idler but i mean it was like a a years-long thing of like god i gotta crank out another column (laughs) so like i can forgive him getting samey yeah he he has the yeah limitations of human achievement okay um i understand why bloom put him or has a whole chapter devoted to him yeah uh i think it fits bloom's agenda the the thing that had me a little bit baffled though was um Beckett really admired Johnson Mm -hmm. and I was, I was trying to figure out why, what am I missing? What's going on here? Um, Johnson was sort of a glorious pessimist. Beckett also was a glorious pessimist. Um, An apocryphal story about Beckett uh, that a a very well-respected professor once told me was uh, he, he was apparently walking to a cricket match in Dublin um, one day with a friend of his in spring when he was in his twenties and uh, Beckett was usually generally very taciturn and his friend was being a little ebullient and uh, kept saying, you know, it's a really beautiful day out. Nice spring day. 
and Beckett nodded agreement. Uh, really, really, really fantastic. You know, just a, a glorious day. And Beckett sort of nodded. And his friend said, yeah, it really makes you happy to be alive. And Beckett said, well, let's not get carried away. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think that temperament is sort of what draws what drew Beckett to, to Johnson. And, yeah. and Beckett had even, um, he had an abandoned play from early on where he, uh, I believe it was called the vanity of human wishes or called human wishes, but, uh, I think he wrote one scene and it was about Samuel Johnson yeah. and sort of his, his household. Um, but, and I was like, what? I, I love Beckett, but what are you seeing here? Um, it's in the limitations of human achievement that I, f- I really sort of felt like he, Johnson was expressing this, this real melancholy in in a very clear way. Um, it's all about frustration. Yeah. And he says, we do not indeed so often disappoint others as ourselves. We not only think more highly than others of our own abilities, but allow ourselves to form hopes, which we never communicate and please our thoughts with employments, which none ever will allot us. And with elevations to which we are never expected to rise. And when our days and years have passed away in common business or common amusements, and we find at last that we have suffered our purposes to sleep till the time of action is past, we are reproached only by our own reflections. Neither our friends nor our enemies wonder that we live and die like the rest of mankind, that we live without notice and die without memorial. They know uh, not what task we had proposed and therefore cannot discern whether it is finished. Um, we're back, we're back to ontological <laughs> crisis. Yeah. But what, what he seems to be articulating here, uh, at least as far as he understands it, is a kind of fundamental solipsism. This inability ever really to connect with anyone. We, we know what failures we are because we know ourselves intimately and we are the only ones who will ever know ourselves intimately. And that's so heartbreaking and yet so insightful. Like we die frustrated and alone because no one else will ever understand what our frustrations really are because we have an idea of what we're striving towards and no one else will ever understand that. Um, he goes on, he that compares what he has done with what he has left undone will feel the effect, which must always follow the comparison of imagination with reality. He will look with contempt on his own unimportance and wonder to what purpose he came into the world. He will repine that he shall leave behind him no evidence of his having been, that he has added nothing to the system of life, but has gilded from uh, has glided from youth to age among the crowd without any effort for distinction. Man is seldom willing to let fall the opinion of his own dignity or to believe that he does little only because every individual is a very little being. He is better content to want diligence than power and sooner confesses the depravity of his will than the imbecility of his nature. Um, Yeah, again, he's in a much less jovial and fun way. He's looking at the vanity that we all possess Mm -hmm. that, you know, there's something great in me that, that, deserves expression and we will always be frustrated because it will never be expressed because at the end of the day, we're all just (laughs) rotting flesh. (laughs) Um, 
from this mistaken notion of human greatness, it proceeds that many who pretend to have made great advances in wisdom so loudly declare that they despise themselves. If I had ever found any of their self-contemners much irritated or pained by the consciousness of their meanness, I should have given them consolation by observing that a little more than nothing is as much as can be expected from a being who, with respect to the multitude about him, is little more than nothing, is himself little more than nothing. Um I'll go over that one more time. If I had ever found any of the self-contemners much irritated or pained by the consciousness of their meanness, and he's talking about uh, people who have done so much mm-hmm. and and hate the fact and hate themselves so much because they haven't lived up to their own idea of themselves, I should have given them consolation by observing that a little more than nothing is as much as can be expected from a being who, with respect to the multitudes about him, is little more is little is himself little more than nothing. Yeah. Um, well, <laughs> you did a little bit. Yeah. And that's better than nothing. And and what um, and what more can you expect from any of us? We 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 frail, small, short-lived things. You know. <laughs> Yeah. So it, it's it's that essay that I really found the most moving as mm-hmm. as someone who in his own bizarre way is something of a perfectionist and a self-hater. Um it it hits very very close to home. Uh and, and it expresses it in this way that I find extraordinarily touching. The loneliness of it. The um the futility of it. And the fact that despite our, our intellectual rationalization or, or realization of the futility and all of that, we still hammer at it again and again and again and again and again and set ourselves up for failure again and again and again and again and again. Yeah. And that bleak, pessimistic line, well, a little more than nothing is better than nothing. That's Beckett. <laughs> yes. Um, except I think Beckett would have said a little less than nothing is better than nothing. <laughs> but that's, that's Beckett. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, you know, out of all these, uh, I think those are the ones that I, I think if anybody's looking to take this on, those would be the ones that, that I would, I would really sort of recommend. Um, th- this was a lot. <laughs> This was a lot to get through. Uh, and, and I've been trying to articulate why that was. This, this was the first time that we got to something that I, I really regretted doing. <laughs> because it, it just, okay. It was, it was more. Milton, Milton irritates me. Yeah. But this was, was kind of a drag to read. Yeah. It's a little like Milton can, can irritate, uh, but he's, well, he's definitely reaching for something. Um, yeah. And a lot of the, a lot of the Johnson work, you know, you can, you can tell it's, you know, this is my job. <laughs> I'm doing this for the yeah. money. You know? <laughs> <laughs> kind of pumping it out. Right, um, right, right. Some of them, like, as we've sort of illustrated, there, there's stuff to say here. There's stuff to think about here and there's stuff to, to sort of have fun with, but this isn't necessarily what I would turn to, yeah. you know, uh, that's why uh, I'm, I, I'm really looking forward to, uh, Rasselas. Uh, yeah. so I'm, I'm excited to approach that, um, from a couple of angles, um, you know, for next time, just because one, it's a, you know, it's a fiction work. So I think it's a little, you know, it'll be a little less, you know, uh, Montaigne with a deadline. Um, but also the, uh, I guess, and we'll, I, we'll get into more of the background like, on, the, on the work itself when we talk about it, but it's a, it's, it's one of those European works 
set in a foreign land in order to use it as a counterpoint to the follies of his own land. But um, it's set in Abyssinia, what we know today as Ethiopia. Um, But Johnson also had some secondhand knowledge of actual Ethiopia because he was the translator into English of a Jesuit priest's account of his time in Ethiopia about a a couple generations before. Um, so I'm, I'm interested to see just how, and, and I guess the, the history of Ethiopia and, and, and its, and its culture is something that's very interesting to me. It's something that I've done my own sort of personal research into. So I'm kind of interested to see how some, you know, powdered wig, you know, dum dum decides to, <laughs> decides to render the society that I myself have a personal interest in. It's uh, as someone who's have, who's already started it and about halfway through it's it's interesting yeah i guess that's damning with faint praise <laughs> well, we'll, okay, we'll so, be able to suss out more about uh how 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 faintly we shall damn i guess next time <laughs> okay so next time we'll be taking on rassless and vanity of human wishes so uh i i guess that's about it well yeah until then uh i guess we'll talk to you later and daniel always great to talk to you uh hey wonderful conversation as always claude uh well see you next time